Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. Hello. Hi. We're back. (laughs) We're back. We just finished recording (laughs) Um, a bonus episode with Hannah's sister, Rachel. Yes, I've mentioned her many times. She is a high school librarian. Yeah. Um, So she knows books. She does know books. Mm -hmm. And she knows a lot of books that we don't know. This is true. Very true. So her conversation is going to be available only to patrons, though, for now. So people on our Patreon are going to get this guest episode where we talk to Rachel about the books that she loves and hates. Yes. And so if you want to hear that episode, go to patreon.com slash hate this book pod and consider joining our Patreon. Yeah. And if bonus episodes are not your thing, uh, but there's something else that might entice you uh, to help support us in our podcasting endeavors, let us know. Yeah. Like, we don't know what we're doing. So if you... <laughs> <laughs> yes, please support us. If you... Go to our Patreon and you're like, I would be a $3 a month patron, but like, I'm not really interested in this perk. What would you be interested in? I mean, we want to give the people what they want. We're here to give the people what they want. We we don't know what the people want. So if you know what the people want, we would be happy to discuss that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So we're excited about that episode and stop by our Patreon And don't forget to rate and review and subscribe. And tell your friends. Like, I love all the reviews we've gotten so far. Our friends are gracious and lovely. But I feel like I will know we have arrived when we get our first bad review. Oh, yeah, because it's someone who doesn't know us and felt okay about being like, it's fine, I guess. That's when I'll know. Yeah. (laughs) So so I did a deep dive into our podcast analytics, which I don't normally do because I... We're doing this for fun. We are. And I don't want to become obsessed with, like, the success of it, and I I know myself. But I was interested, and so I looked into our analytics, and so obviously the majority of our listeners are from the United States. Sure. Where do you think the second most are from? Canada? Nope. For real? Canada is fourth. There are two other countries. There are two other countries before Canada. Okay, England? <laughs> the United Kingdom okay. is third. What second? What is second? Oh my. You're never going to get Ireland? India. You're kidding. No. India? And not by a little either. Like, I mean, statistically, they have more people, <laughs> they do. I guess. I mean, if you're listening from India, hey, yeah. what's up? We don't know anybody in India that I I'm... don't think I do, but that's really cool. Yeah. I hope they enjoyed especially our yeah. uh, episode on... <laughs> Punjabi widows. I have to tell you, like, five or six people have mentioned that episode to me in person, and every single one of them has called the book something else. Like, my dad called it um, Exotic Stories for a Punjabi Lady. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Kyle just called it... um, It is a a long title. Yeah. 
Kyle called it like sex stories for an Indian woman. <laughs> Again, close. Yeah. Everybody who talks to me about it calls it like the review that we did last week where she changes Lowen's name every time. Yes, that yes. is what it's like to talk to people about <laughs> erotic stories for Punjabi widows is it's always just a slight variation on the correct name. That's funny. Well, it's like I always have the tendency to shorten it to the first two or three words. but then it's, And then it's just erotic stories. Right. And so then I'm like, oh, that's awkward. Uh, how about Punjabi widows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're in India, we'd love to hear from you. For sure. But, yeah, it's got three times as many listeners in India as in Canada. So, obviously, my friend from Canada is not doing his evangelism <laughs> work the way he should be. Also, I mean, but they, like I said, they have more people. So. Yeah. But where are you, China? <laughs> yeah. I, know. I was just excited to see That's that really and cool. I was like Hannah's literally never gonna guess I would have India. not no <laughs> you would have guessed every other majority English-speaking country before that yes correct like it would have been Australia would next and then like <laughs> yep okay well, that's cool glad yeah. we have listeners abroad so that's the end of our housekeeping yes do you want to introduce our well ask I'll ask my a, question yeah. first mm-hmm. ask me a question if you had to live in one of Shakespeare's plays, <gasps> oh, no. which one would it be and why? Oh, man. I mean, what's coming to my mind first is what I would not want to live in. <laughs> you can also tell me what you would not want um, to live in. Well, Titus Andronicus, it's so bloody. All, I mean, all the tragedies. This is hard. I told you last week that I was going to ask you a hard existential yeah. question, and I... I real okay. I remember really enjoying Pericles because it's like a voyage and an adventure story. But it's been so long since I've read it, I don't feel confident in that answer because <laughs> I don't remember all the things. I that mean, happen. you don't have to be the main character who has really crazy stuff happen right. to them. But like, which universe would you want to? I mean, and the Tempest is really fun. Yeah, I used to teach that when I taught tenth grade, and I told them this is the Shakespeare play that like. If Disney were going to make a movie, you know, there's a love story, there's a witch, there's magic, there's a shipwreck, there's two bumbling fools that dress up in funny clothes. Like, <laughs> you know, there, there's all the things. Yeah. Um, so that's fun and it takes place on an enchanted island. I love a good enchanted island. So that might be fun. Although the isolation of living on an island kind of freaks me out. I don't know enough about Shakespeare's plays to have any opinion on the matter. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I lo- Macbeth is my favorite of his plays, but I don't think I want to live <laughs> um, in that world. No. So, yeah, I guess for now I'll go with The Tempest. Okay. A solid answer that I respect knowing nothing about that particular cool. play. Cool, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's also his last play, so oh. it's his farewell. You want to tell us about okay. our book this yeah, week? Yeah, so that is a good segue. Um. The book that we're reading this week, or that Stephanie read this week, is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I, again, forgot to prepare a summary. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's historical fiction. We're not going to worry about spoilers. I mean, no. I I, don't know that there really are spoilers. The book spoils itself. Right. It's a book um, about Shakespeare. It's a historical fiction novel about Shakespeare's life, but he's not the main character. The main character is his wife, Agnes, who most historians refer to as Anne Hathaway. That's what you probably learned her name was when you were in high school. Um, And another thing that historians also know about, uh, not about Hamlet, about Shakespeare, is that he had a son named Hamnet that died, most probably of the plague. It was some kind of protracted illness. And so Maggie O'Farrell takes those details and some other scant details from his life, and she turned it into this um, historical narrative about 
his wife and his children and his life. It starts before he meets Agnes um, and it goes through, you know, his burgeoning career and really centers around the loss of their son, Hamnet, uh, and then ends with his play production of his most famous tragedy, which I would not want to live in because there's something rotten in Denmark, uh, Hamlet. That's the synopsis. Yeah. And apparently the name Hamnet and Hamlet were used interchangeably during this time. So, yeah, that's confusing. Much like... H-A-M-N-E-T and H-A-M-L-E-T. Apparently, same word. Yeah. You know, bookkeeping, not so great in this time period. In late 15, early 1600s. And also Agnes and Anne were all... Uh, yeah. Those so, are not the same name, usually, but they are. Usually when you look up who was Shakespeare's wife, you'll see Anne Hathaway. But apparently her father registered her on one of their, like, church registries for their wedding or whatever as Agnes. And his will referenced her as Agnes. Yes. So that is uh, the name that O'Farrell uses. So just wanted to clear up any confusion about Hamnet, Hamlet, Hamnet. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. Mm-hmm. Do you want to predict what I gave this? I don't know. Um... It dep- I mean, knowing that you like purple prose, as you've mentioned before, <laughs> I'm going to stay optimistic and say a three. I gave it a four. Your first four! My oh, first I'm so excited. Four. <laughs> I wondered if this would be the one. Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. Do you read a lot of historical fiction? Yeah, I guess I do. Okay. I wouldn't say that it's my top genre, but I do really like it. Um, same, same here. I've drifted from it because so much of it is the same. So yes. go to a bookstore and look at historical fiction. It's all World War II, and there is a woman with her back on the cover. Like, it is always <laughs> the back of a woman walking away in a historic, like, a, a monument. Like, the Eiffel Tower is in the back, or the Berlin Wall is That's in the funny. back. It's really hilarious. There are TikToks of, like, compilations of just historical fiction, woman with a back, woman with a back, woman with a back. That's weird. I wonder why that is. Who started that? I don't know, but it is overdone. And now, like, pretty much if the cover has a woman's back on it, I'm like, no! So you've read more, like, 20th century historical fiction. Mm -hmm. Okay, because, see, I've read more of this type of historical fiction set in the Renaissance or around that time. Which, now, I'm looking for stuff that's not that. So I would be open to suggestions for different time periods. I mean, Philip, yeah, Philip really, Gregory's the big one. I'm know. really over the World War II time period. Yeah, I don't, I haven't read a lot of those. I don't think I'm interested to. I can give you a couple good ones, yeah. but avoid the other 40,000. Sure. Well, I got real into the Renaissance time period, like in high school. I remember reading Philippa Gregory. She wrote the other Boleyn girl yeah. that was made into a movie and then delved into some older ones like Anya Seton's Catherine is a big one. But yeah, that's this is the t- the time period of history that I enjoy. Yeah, so. that makes sense. To and me. of course, I love Shakespeare, and you know Shakespeare, I guess. <laughs> fair to say. So I wasn't sure. How I you know do. of the man. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how you'd do with the Shakespeare of it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't super Shakespeare. Well, no. Let me just talk. Okay. Go ahead. So the person who's going to be most surprised by this rating is Kyle because of how I talked about this book when I first started it. <laughs> oh, oh, please tell me. Um, so Hannah gave me a hard copy of this book, but I was working my way through another physical book, and I don't like to have two physical books at a time. That's and so fair. I was like, I'm going to finish this book, and then I'm just going to have to pray that I have enough time to finish the book before we have to record. Mm-hmm. And then... Lo and behold, my Libby, it became available on audio on Friday, like four days oh, ago, Friday. Yes, this and is so, Tuesday. <laughs> so 
on Friday, I'm like, I'm going to listen to this at work. And this is a prime example of how your opinion of something might be framed by when and where and how you're experiencing it. Fair. My brain was working hard at work. And even though I was trying really hard to pay attention, like, I I have to talk about this book. And I wanted to be interested in it. I realized at 15% that I could not name a single character or thing that had happened. (laughs) I had listened to 15% of the book and I was like, pop quiz, I know nothing. I fail. Yes. So I was like, I have to go back to the beginning. (laughs) This is interesting. This is not what I would consider the most homeworky book I've given you. No, it's not. Um, I had to go back to the beginning and I had just as hard of a time. I just had a really hard time getting oriented in the world of the book, most likely because I was doing two things at once with my brain. Um, I made it back to where I had originally started the book over and I still only had like a tenuous grasp on what was happening and it just felt like meaningless words were like drifting into my ears in no particular order and amounting to nothing and I texted Kyle Hannah's book is so boring I might die (laughs) (laughs) it's Winesburg all over again (laughs) and I almost texted you and was like I'm gonna need an extension like I should not have started this on Friday there's not gonna be any possible way that I slug through this book before Tuesday like I'm so sorry this is gonna be the first time we have to do this like I cannot read this book I I would have just been relieved it was you first and not me (laughs) so on my way home on Friday I was like focus you have to talk about this book so you have to know what it says you signed up for this (laughs) listen to the words and turn them into sentences So on my way home from work, I was like listening to this book and I was very intent on paying attention. And then I'm going to sound like a pervert saying this, but you know, no, it's okay. Erotic stories. It's fine. Um, I started paying very close attention when we got to the first sex scene and not because it is sexy, but because it is distinctly not very sexy. Are you talking about in the apple? The apples. I have that excerpt. We're going to talk about it. I was going to read it right now. Oh, can I read it now or do you want to read it later? No, you can. I was going to bring that up as one of the things I like about her writing. And that scene in particular stood out to me because, as you know, I don't I don't like reading romance. I don't like a lot of eroticness in my writing. But that scene was so interesting in the way it was written. Yes. And it was such a great example of we've talked about like showing and not telling. Yeah. And part of the reason I'm just not interested in reading like sex scenes is because it just gets repetitive and sometimes clinical. And yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need that many idioms for different people's body parts. Like <laughs> I'm just over it. But this does none of that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read, I'm going to skip a little part of it because it's kind of long, but right here we go. The lines and lines of apples are moving, jolting, rocking on their shelves. Each apple is centered in a special groove carved into the wooden racks that run around the walls of this small storeroom. Rock, rock, Jolt, jolt. The fruit has been placed with care, just so. The woody stem down and the star of the calyx up. The skin mustn't touch that of its neighbor. They must sit like this, lightly held by the wooden groove, a finger width from each other, over the winter or they will spoil. If they touch each other, they will brown and sag and molder and rot. They must be preserved in rows like this, separated stems down in airy isolation. Except that something is moving the apples, again and again and again, over and over, with shunting, nudging, insistent motion. The kestrel on her perch is hooded but alert, always alert. Her head rotates within its rough and 
flecked feathers to ascertain the source of this repetitive distracting noise. Her ears, tuned so acutely that they can, if required, discern the heartbeat of a mouse a hundred feet away, a stoat's footfall across the forest, the wingbat of a wren over a field, picking up on the following, twenty scores of apples being nudged, jostled, bothered in their cradles, the breathing of mammals, of a size too large to elicit the interest of her appetite, increasing in pace, the hollow of a palm landing lightly on, a, on muscle and bone, the click and slither of a tongue against teeth, two planes of fabric of different textures moving over each other in a obverse direction intended to stop. Yeah, I just had a little bit more in mind, but I think I think you definitely captured um, the feeling. And I yeah. wasn't going to read about the kestrel, but that was a good addition. Yeah. Too. So the kestrel, I didn't know what a kestrel is. It's like a falcon. Yes. So it's Agnes's bird. Yeah, Agnes has a falcon-like bird, a kestrel, that is in this apple storehouse. And I just loved that pretty much if you're old enough to understand what sex is, you understand what's happening, but it is not mentioned at all. No. And, like, I could just see apples, like, turning a millimeter every time mm-hmm. they jostled and, like, all turning in different directions. And, like, I never even saw the couple. I just saw the apples rocking and turning and I was like what a creative way to describe people having sex yeah and all of a sudden I was like is the rest of this book that good should I go back to the beginning (laughs) so Hannah I started the book a third time (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) okay when I got home on Friday well what I did first was I found where I was in the audiobook on the physical copy and I was like I think I, I need to do the physical copy because apparently, there are some books like that. Because I'm apparently not getting very oriented in this world with the audio. I read for a while, and I was like, "Man, I don't know." I thought that the character whose Shakespeare was named Ned, I had oh, mi- right. I had missed a lot of stuff, and I was like, "You're gonna have to start over." Yes. And I was getting really frustrated because I'd started this book twice, and Kyle looks at me and was like, what's wrong? And I was like, this book! <laughs> and so he's going to be very surprised to hear that I gave it a four because he heard a lot of frustration from me on Friday about it. Well, she, yeah, she does some creative things with her writing that if you're not fully immersed in the experience at the beginning, I think that's fair. Yeah. You'll lose, you'll lose some yeah. things. And once I went back, mm-hmm. I was like, okay. I fully understand. Like, this book is not confusing, but it is if you're not paying attention very sure. well. Like, it was not homeworky. And once I was looking at the... The first chapter is beautiful. I loved it. And I was like, how did I read this three times? And, like, it took the third Sometimes time. Sometimes you're just tired, girl. I don't know. It just wasn't... It just wasn't happening. But here's why I think I had a hard time getting oriented. This book is written in third person omniscient in present tense. Yes. That's a lot of that's a lot of stuff I just said. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to sound too like No, I I understood it. I mean, yeah, but you're an I, English teacher. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, written like it's happening right now. Yes, yeah, so present tense happening right now. Third person omniscient. It's like you're watching a movie. It's like you're God. So the narrator is hovering above everything and can get into Hannah's head and feel Hannah's thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. at the same time as feeling my thoughts and feelings and expressing them all. And so you're everywhere at once and also in no particular place. And third person omniscient present tense is incredibly rare. And that's why I think I had a hard time getting oriented because from paragraph to paragraph, we can be in a different person's head. Yes. And if she does a lot of panning and yes. zooming in and out, yes, if this which is were a very 
very cool. Mm-hmm. But I had a, a you mi- gotta be paying attention. I had a minute where I was like, what? Yeah. Um, a good example, like masterful use of this same thing is Frederick Bachman, Anxious People, and I've, not, I've only uh, read a, a man called, called Ove or of what it's. We say Ove. I'm sure. I don't isn't know. it Ova or something? Cranky old man. Cranky old man. Mm-hmm. Anxious People is by far my favorite book of his, though. I've read four or five. Five, I think, and Anxious People. If you have not read it, it's incredible the way that he deploys third-person omniscient present tense. Well, that is next. It's on my shelf. I got it at our book club exchange this year. Yes. So with this way of writing, you have to find the voice of every person and perhaps even non-sentient things like fleas. Oh, yep. (laughs) I was going to talk about that. Uh Um, It's like being God. You see all, hear all, and know all, and it's happening right in front of you, and you watch from above as it plays out like a movie. And that's a very different feel from being in one person's head and watching how they see the world and how they perceive things. Right. And one individual can only see so much. They don't see what's happening behind them and, like, our brains filter out information. And so the amount of information you're given... It's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just very different from reading in first person. Or even third person limited. Third person limited Mm -hmm. is most common. Mm -hmm. In this book, we follow the journey of a flea from the Middle East, the animals and people it ends up on, and then as it's little fleas descendants because Mm -hmm. fleas don't actually live very long before arriving in Stratford and ending up in a box of beads that Judith opens. Judith is Shakespeare's daughter. Yes, that's Hamnet's twin sister. Yeah. And that's in the middle of the book. Wasn't it like almost dead middle of the book? Yeah. That's the biggest moment because for the most part you're in Stratford, you're with Agnes and Shakespeare and their children and their family, but like the middle of the book, it gets this break and you're suddenly on a ship mm-hmm. coming out of like Greece. Yeah. And there's this flea and this boy with a monkey and you're like, what's going on? But it's it follows this whole journey. Well, and it tells you what it says, like, these are the things that had to happen yes. for Hamnet to get sick. Yes. And it follows Venetian beads yes. and a, a monkey's flea. Yes. <laughs> and how those two things coincided, which I think is really cool, like... I was going to ask if you liked that part. Yes, like the butterfly effect of how, like, something huge happened to this family because something so small happened a half a world away. Yes. And I love that butterfly effect. And just, like, how everything impacts everything and how it's all connected. I thought it was really beautiful. And I thought she wrote it so clearly. I mean, I'm not—it's a long excerpt, so it's like a whole chapter. But, like, even the little boy with the monkey on Mm -hmm. the ship— like, he's there for a moment, but she made me care about him. Yeah. Because he cared about this monkey. And then, anyway. Yeah, I cared about the monkey and I cared about the boy. Yeah. And I cared about the Venetian bead maker who got sick and yes. uh, hurt his hand and all of that. And, yeah, you follow a flea. And I, like, kind of identified with a flea at some point. Um, <laughs> Very John Dunn of you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I really liked that. Another reason why I think I had a hard time getting oriented is mm. she never names Shakespeare. Yes, I wondered if you would bring that up. Yes. Um, I really liked that okay. once I understood what was happening. <laughs> yes. He's never named. He's just the husband, the father, the son, the brother, the glove maker, the playwright, something. We get in his head kind of in the same way we do everyone else's, but less so because the story... He's not the focus. Yeah, the story is not about them. I really liked taking... This story about a really famous person and making it about the or, the quote-unquote ordinary people who lived their life around yes. mm-hmm. 
So I, I like I'm not sure exactly what O'Farrell's intention was in doing this, but what I took away from it was that Shakespeare has had enough space on the page. Right. Like, <laughs> Maybe just a little. He's he's gotten enough time, <laughs> enough airtime. Um he got to share his story as many times as he wanted and in iterations that he wanted. He got mm-hmm. to leave himself on the page. And literally everybody knows his name, even a hundred years later. So you get to sit this one out. <laughs> and how we yep. idolize the famous and for people like Shakespeare, who were, like, incredibly influential in their field, so they're not, like, famous for no reason. Like, right. I think he, you know, deserves the fame that he got. Sure. But this book was just kind of a reminder of how, to someone, that guy who changed the face of theater and literature or whatever, it was just, like, the dad who wasn't home that much. Right. And the husband mm-hmm. who... You know, or the son who was obnoxious and yeah, lazy, like or the son who didn't follow in the family mm-hmm. path and was a big disappointment, and the husband who didn't catch on to what you were trying to communicate with him. This and upstart young guy that wants to marry your sister. Yeah, you the know? town weirdo. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and this story, he was honestly kind of a disappointing father and husband, and mostly because of his work. Yes. Which is the reason why we all know his name. Right. And so I really liked the subtraction of yes. his name. I loved the character Agnes. Oh, yeah. I identified with her. She's like a forest witch. Yeah. She's very <laughs> woo-woo, I guess yeah. you could call her. Um, especially after Hamnet has died. Yes. All of her thoughts and feelings made so much sense to me. I imagine that I would think and feel like exactly the same way. Uh, she describes looking over his body and imagining not seeing those parts of his body ever again. And I mm. I forget exactly which parts it was, but it was not like his smile and his lovely eyes. Right. It was like his shins. And I get that so much. Like, sometimes I just look at Maggie and I'm like, look at those elbows. <laughs> like <laughs> I made you. Look at these little thighs. What cool shoulder blades you have. Yeah. And, like, when you love something so much that even the ridiculously mundane things about that are fascinating. Like, I can watch Maggie's shoulder blades move for an hour and a half and not get bored. Yep. Oh, man. I was just thinking of her doing that. And I was like, The way she portrays Agnes's grief over losing her son was heartbreaking, but it was so good. Yes. And I felt like it was so real. Yeah. As a mother, when I read it, I was like, yes, this is not like sugarcoating it, but this is also not over dramatizing it. Like this is I, raw. I identified with all parts of it. Yep. She describes her mind wandering to her children like a line being cast out. Oh, like I love that. Line. Yes. Like she's just got these lines yes. going from her. And yes, I get that so much. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't stop doing it after Hamnet was gone. Yep. And so there'd be a paragraph about her doing something and then she'd say, and Hamnet, where is he? And then another paragraph in and Hamnet. And it felt so real, like when you call out to somebody from the other room mm-hmm. the day after they've passed, you go like, oh, they're not right. going to answer. We recently put our dog down. And oh, like yeah. every time food falls on the floor, we're it's just a m- automatic. Like, we where's go, the Bella? <laughs> and like the first couple days afterwards when we just call her from another room and like wouldn't hear anything. Right. Like, oh, that's what it felt like to me. And he was... Mm-hmm. 11, 13? I think 11. 10 so 11. a lot of years of you being yes. programmed to do that. You cannot stop that in a day. And she would have just weeks of casting her line out and reaching for Hamnet and not mm-hmm. finding anything. That's the other thing I appreciated about the way O'Farrell 
talked about grief is it didn't end. Like, it didn't just go away. And I, I identified with the part of Agnes getting, I think, frustrated with the people she lived around because everybody just wanted her to, like, get over it, which, of course, this is a time children died a lot. But, like, she's like, no, this is my son. I want to grieve over him the way and for how long I want to grieve over him. Stop telling me to get over it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's me paraphrasing. O'Farrell wrote it much better. <laughs> but... That sense, I just remember that sense of, like, I just wanted to yell at the other characters, like, leave her alone! Like, yeah. Well, and the, her mother-in-law, so Shakespeare's mother, had lost several children to illness as well, and... Again, not uncommon. They did not get along for, like, the entirety of this book, but there are some really delicate moments after Hamnet dies where it's like, I kind of hate you. But I'm the only person in this room who knows what this feels like. Right. And they respected each other in Mm -hmm. a really particular way in that moment. And I liked that because that's true. Like, you can hate somebody, but it's like, you know, this really acute pain that I know that I can't talk to anybody about. And it's like, we are kind of best friends, though, in a way now. (laughs) Like, I look in your eyes and I know that you know that I know. And it's just (laughs) nice to have somebody that knows. Yeah. No matter if you like them or not. Oh, and this one got me. She describes the moment when Shakespeare walks in from out of town because they've sent a letter saying our daughter, Judith, is sick. Yes. Because that's how it starts is that Judith falls ill. Well, and from infancy, you know, twins were precarious back then. Mm-hmm. And she was always the sick one. Yeah. Um, so they were always more cautious about her. I think that's why in the book O'Farrell, that's her explanation for why the whole family doesn't go to London. Yeah. Because Judith's lungs, you know, can't. Yeah. So he gets this letter saying Judith is sick. She's not long for this world. You should come home. And so it's like the 1500s. So that's the last communication you get until he walks in the door and he sees Judith and she's fine. And he like this relief washes over his face. And then he counts the people in the room and then he sees the shroud and he has this look of like, well, who is it then? And he realizes it like... And she says she waits seconds because she doesn't want to, like, she wants him to have just a moment longer before he knows that his son is dead. Because, like, you can never get that moment back before you know. And she wants him to have three more seconds of not knowing that his son is dead. And I was like, well, just slap me in the face, O'Farrell. It was so well written. Uh, and that that's another scene that, like, I think some people would not like about this book because it goes on. Like, she tracks the letter that oh, Agnes yeah. sends Shakespeare. Like, how it takes a long time to get to him, and she tells us a lot about what he's doing when it gets there and how he's got to, like, get a horse and get back. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty lengthy description, but I enjoyed it. I did, too. I think that's important. Like... Yes. Especially in a world where communication is so instant, I felt like it was poignant being like, this is what this letter had to go through to get to him. Right. To tell him the most important news of his life so far. And then he had to get home. Yeah. And, and then the knowing, news had changed. Well, and he had to get home knowing I am I'm might be late. Like, yeah. Because I know this was sent, you know, how many days ago? And I've got how many days ride to get there? And, and then something fundamentally changes yes. between the communication and getting home. And he's completely blindsided by it. Yes. So I, I liked having to track the letter and be like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm glad. It's so- oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> This book also mentions a jackdaw. Did you notice that? 
I don't remember because I read it prior to uh, Caledonia. Caledonia. Um, but, but I was like, okay, well, we have a... That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not at all. So you now have a theme, Jackdaws. Uh, right. Which my husband... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon made sure to point out to both of us that a jackdaw is in the same family as a raven. It's a corvid. And as he said, are you pulling up the text? I want to pull up the text, yes. Okay. I'm going to let Stephanie pull up the text and just read his words. I'm a big fan of the Corvid family of birds and just wanted to say that a jackdaw is a Corvid and therefore a cousin of ravens and crows. You were correct. <laughs> I just love I'm a big fan of the Corvid family oh, of I've birds. I've never loved him more. <laughs> what so, a nerd. <laughs> I was like, wow, I didn't think you could top your nerdiness, but then you said that. But we always can. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of birds and... The supernatural element in this book, Mm -hmm. I think, is interesting, too, because even though it's a historical fiction and there's a lot of very realistic portrayals, Agnes is also, like you said, witchy. Yeah. um, And there are some some fun supernatural elements. But that's the part I thought you would perhaps like the most. I mean, I dug it. Yeah. But that's not what, like... Stood out to you. Got me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do love a purple prose. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought the writing was just really beautiful. Some reviewers have complained about the amount of adjectives. Oh, yeah. I... Every single thing I noted as a reason that I liked it is word for word described as a reason why someone else hates it. That's funny. Which is just... Just goes to show you. But yeah, when I was going through the one-star reviews, I was like, okay, so it's the three things I said I liked. They hate all those things. That's interesting, because this is the first time you've given a book I've assigned you a four, and then you had to go look at the one-star reviews. Yeah, and it was... And I was like... This is all the stuff I said. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> and sometimes hearing a one-star review will help inform... I forget which book this happened with. It's not. It doesn't matter. But sometimes you'll be like, I didn't quite like that, but I can't really put my finger on why. And, and then, then you read a one-star review and you're like, that was it. That yes. bugged me. And so sometimes I, I'm afraid to read them because I'm like, I liked it and I think I'm giving it a four. And I was like clicking on the one star reviews with one eye shut. Like, is this <laughs> don't influence me. Yeah. But I read them and I was like, you know what? Yeah, it was. It was overly purple. And, and you know we what? love it. I'm fine with that. And it might not be for everybody, but if that's you don't, okay. If you don't like lots of adjectives and lots of zoom outs, you know, about a flea. This book might not be for you. Yeah. And that's okay. But we like it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I didn't steal too much of your thunder since oh, no. you're going to talk about... I figured you would have so much more, like, Shakespeare nerdy stuff to say. Um, I have a little. But okay. there's really... She built on just very scant details. Yeah. Like, that's one of the famous things we know about Shakespeare is we don't know a lot about Shakespeare. <laughs> um, so Had family. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um. So I'll just start with my experience of the book, since you had a very specific experience. (laughs) Thrice I read this book. Um, I was at a bookstore in Memphis with some of our mutual friends, and one of them, uh, Lauren, whom we both trust with book recommendations, she said, oh, she picked this book up and said, Hannah, you would like this. I thought to myself, yes, I would, but I have just had my second baby boy, and we are living through COVID right now, and I can't read read this book about a little boy that dies in a plague. No. Not for me right now. I'll save it for later. Yeah, that's fair. That's so, fair. That year, I put it on my Christmas list. My mother-in-law bought it for me, I think, if memory serves me. 
And then it was last summer that I finally had the time. I was like, I'm going to pick this up and read it. And I was, my attention was not divided. It was the <laughs> summer I read a lot of this sitting by the pool at my mom's house. Oh. So I was able to immerse myself. And I just loved her writing. This was yeah. the first book by Maggie O'Farrell I've read. Um, it was her eighth novel. Really? That she's written. Yep. Um, but I really enjoyed it. What else can I say? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Maggie O'Farrell herself. This is her eighth novel. She just came out with a ninth last year, The Marriage Portrait. Oh. Which is another historical fiction. I feel like I've heard a lot about that book. It's, I didn't realize it was by her. Yes. It's based on um, Lucretia de, de, Medici? de Medici. How do you say that? I'm not Italian. I'm, I don't I know. I should look it up. I feel like I've heard about this book. Oh, it's got it a months-long wait on Libby. So I'm just sitting over here waiting. But she has written nine novels, one memoir, and two children's books. Oh, so she's written quite a bit. Um, she was born in Northern Ireland, but she grew up mostly in Britain, and now she lives in Edinburgh, Scotland. And she's spoken about how fraught growing up in England was being from Ireland. And this is oh, something yeah. I don't think about a lot, but this was during the 90s. And, like, people yeah. would just casually mention to her as a 12-year-old, like, oh, is your dad in the IRA? Oh, is your dad a terrorist? Like, because they were from Northern Ireland. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. She's also lived in Wales, Hong Kong, Italy, which I'm assuming is where she got her inspiration for her most recent novel. Sure. Anyway, she sounds like a cool, cool gal. And we know she worked um, for a publication in London where she had to communicate with Elspeth Barker. So, yeah. <laughs> so her first novel, After I'm Gone, came out in 2001, and it, it got good reviews. It won some things. Her novels have always been pretty successful. I don't know much about her earlier novels. Yeah. Hamnet, I think from what I can gather, is the first one that got, like, real... Big recognition. Yes. It won uh, the Woman's Prize for Fiction. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. I read one interview that O'Farrell did, and she was just, like, gobsmacked yeah. that it won the woman. She was not expecting this. This was her eighth novel. She's like, oh, I'm going to do another one, you know. The other interesting thing about this book is it got published in early 2020. 2020! Right. this The plague year. Yes. This same interview that I read that I'll link to in the show notes, it's in The Guardian. Um, she was thinking about, oh, my book's coming out soon. I'm going to go get a dress. So she goes, she buys a dress. She takes it to the dry cleaners. And like five days later, it's like everything's shut down. <laughs> so it's really weird. Like That is so weird. Because now when you read it and like when I read that chapter of the flea and how it brings the plague to the Shakespeare family, all I could think was COVID. Yeah. But that. That hadn't happened yet when she wrote it. That, like, really alarmed me. I mean, I think about sickness so differently post-COVID. Yes. I'm sure this is true for most people. Yes. But, like, I used to live in a world where it's like, oh, I just have a cold. I'll still go on a date to school, to right. work, and I'll still stand right next to somebody. And I'll just be like, sorry, I have a cold. And they're like, that's cool. It's fine. And... Then, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> and now, like, tracing back where something happened and how somebody can touch something at Walmart. Like, I don't know. We think about it so differently. And so reading that scene, I was like, this happened to the whole entire world. How many of us? Well, like, and that's what was so crazy to me is this book seemed like she wrote it after COVID to me. With yeah. the way she wrote about the plague and how nobody could really do anything about it. All you could try to do was avoid it and hope for the best. And, and treat the symptoms and be like, they're there. I know. And I was just like, how did she write this before COVID? I might have an answer. So her one memoir that I mentioned, uh, it's called I Am, I Am, I Am. 
and came out in 2017. And it's about her many, uh, hers and her children's many near-death experiences. What? This is something she has experience with. Um, I don't know how you could write about a child she, dying if you'd had near-death experiences. With she you. and her children. She It mentions, like, when she was eight, she had encephalitis. She had to be out of school for, like, a whole year. Yeah. Crazy. Oh she, one, she has three children, uh, and one of them has a very severe allergy. And this was so cool when I, when I read about this because she, like a mother, she's like, I want to help my child. And all the medications her child kept getting weren't working, weren't working. So she finally like concocted a natural balm at home. She was having like eczema and she just made it out of natural butters and herbs and it worked. And so like, she still makes it four times a year. Like she does this (laughs) for her daughter. And I was like, that's so Agnes. (laughs) That's what her character does in the book. Yeah. That's O'Farrell. Yeah. I am noticing now that our last two books have dying children in them. (sighs) You know, and I don't typically like like real life stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but this was just so beautiful. It was. I don't know. I'll have to ponder why it is I well, like this and, and not others. While you get to know Hamnet, you also kind of don't. And you are told from the beginning, this is a yes. story about how Shakespeare's son Hamnet dies. Right. So it's not like you've read 75% of a book and then all of a sudden the kid gets hit by a car and you're just like, oh my goodness. No, what there's just plenty happened? of trigger warning. Yeah. like Also history. Yeah. So it's very different than how... Most other books where you would say, oh, that's not for me, where it blindsides you after you've, like, been following a kid around. You engage with Hamnet, but I would argue that you don't get that close to him. you don't. And you're definitely forewarned. And I think, yeah, I don't like when I feel like my emotions are being manipulated by a book or a movie. That's what I don't like. Trying to make you feel sad. Yeah, like, don't try to make me feel something. But this, I feel like, is she's taking a thing that people really experience and just trying to... She's just painting it for you, and yes. how you feel about it is how you feel and about it. And making it, and doing it in a way that's beautiful. So, okay, let's talk about Shakespeare. So, <laughs> let us. Like I said, we don't know a lot, especially about his early life, but usually when, like, you're in school, you're in high school, you learn a few things about him. You learn that he had three kids. Um, he married Anne Hathaway. Which I think is so funny, because the actress, Anne Hathaway, she, Princess Diaries, Anne Hathaway. Like, I think that's weird that she has the same name. Yeah, it is kind of weird. I would so I I've taught Shakespeare for many years to my high school students and we would always talk about how he married Anne and she was older than him which was not oh. normal in that time and then six months later they had their first child Susanna and it's like six months later okay, you did the math um, I always get that one kid in class that's like oh she was a cougar <laughs> it's like uh, okay he wasn't famous yet yeah <laughs> so. We know that, but we don't know... I mean, there's a lot we don't know about Shakespeare, so there's certainly a lot we don't know about his family. We know that he went to London to become, you know, part of the Lord Chamberlain's men and then the King's men, his his uh, theater company, and that his family stayed in Stratford and never came to London to live. But we also know that when he retired, because he did live long enough to be successful enough to retire, he went back to Stratford. Yeah, so they weren't, like, estranged or... No, there's a weird little anecdote about in Shakespeare's will, he left everything to Susanna, their oldest daughter, and mm. o- and left his wife one thing. Have you heard this? No. Yes, he left his wife one thing. Their second best bed. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. I'm sure it's perhaps practical for the time period. There's somebody smarter than me who knows, I'm sure. I liked throwing that in to my students because it woke them up and, like, 
got them to giggle and maybe remember yeah. something. I hope that they had an ongoing joke about how, like, we only really have one good bed, but that... Our second best bet is just trash. Or I something. mean, I always assume that, like, if you're lucky enough to live into your 50s, like Shakespeare did, you're not going to leave your entire livelihood to your wife who's older than you because she's probably going to die soon, too. You leave it to your first Yeah, one. that makes sense. And Susanna's probably not like, Mom, get out. <laughs> so, anyway. Take your second best bet and go. So that's how... Sh- History has always kind of looked at Anne. Yeah. Is she is this older woman. They clearly had a relationship before they got married. She stayed in Stratford, was almost certainly illiterate because she was a farmer's daughter. Like, why would you need to learn to read in the late 1500s? Yeah. Everyone just kind of like dismisses her for that reason. So O'Farrell, she decides to reclaim that narrative. Yeah. For Agnes. Um, And that's one of the things I really liked about this book. Um, In the Guardian article that I've referenced, she has been dubbed a, quote, feminist avenging angel. Uh (laughs) Um, I love that. I like that on a shirt. I don't. And again, I don't actually know anything about her previous seven books that she wrote before Hamnet. So I don't know. But in this one, she certainly reclaims a woman from history that often gets vilified. Like, oh, is she the woman who held Shakespeare back or trapped him early on, you know, before he could become famous or whatever? Yeah, he really suffered for it. (laughs) But like in this book, she's the one who encourages him to go. She's the one who like she's the only person who doesn't think he's weird and like exactly full of bad ideas. She says, go to London and try your thing and like I we love, don't know that that's not what happened I, I loved that scene because she's yes you're right he was just going to stay in Stratford and make gloves and be miserable and she was like I can see you're miserable and you have so much more to offer the world go do yeah. this thing she might be the reason we have Shakespeare exactly. um, O'Farrell has said that throughout the years um, Anne Hathaway has faced quote jaw dropping vilification and downright barefaced misogyny Uh, were fed this idea that she was an ignorant peasant strumpet who tricked this genius boy into marriage and he hated her and had to run away to London to escape. Where is this coming from? Why are people so wedded to the idea of the fancy-free male artist that they have to put her down? And I'm like, yes. Yes! Yes, because you know what? I'm married to an artist and that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. And especially if you have no information. No, It could be any of these options. It could be a thousand different options. Why pick that one? You get to create the story. Why is the one that everyone wants to pick the one where she sucks? Exactly. Like, you suck. Yep. So (laughs) I I appreciate, I like historical fiction, and I appreciate when an author does something interesting and reclaiming a narrative like this, especially when you have so little to go on. Yeah. And even um, Agnes's, I don't know, would you call it supernatural? There's some supernatural elements. She kind of has what's almost called, like, the sight like she, yeah, I, she would be called maybe like a seer. She, yes, you know, can touch people in a certain way and intuit certain things about them. She's not yes. like a fortune teller as in like she can see everything, but she has small excerpts of visions about yes. people when she gets close enough to them. And yeah, I just like was so into it. I didn't ask for like an explanation oh, was, for that or I anything. Was too, I was too, and just it like, cool. went with the more realistic parts of her character. Like she was an early apothecary, basically. Mm-hmm. She kept because she was a farmer's um, daughter, so she knew a lot about nature. She had that kestrel that she had trained, and so I liked that about her. Some reviewers did not like it. There was one review yeah. in the Guardian that was like, "This was a a good book, except she threw in that mumbo jumbo about <laughs> you know." Which I appreciated the mumbo the mumbo jumbo. jumbo. Yeah. 
Okay. So O'Farrell does, though, like, that's not coming out of nowhere. Birds of prey, kestrels, things like that, frequent his plays. Mm -hmm. A lot of his plays have a lot of detailed knowledge of herbs and the natural world. And so she just ran with that. She's like, where did he learn that? He learned it from his wife. Yeah. So she didn't base it on nothing. Yeah. She thought about what's in his plays. How could he have known that? We know he was the son of a glover. They're not going to be out in nature. But his wife, mm-hmm. you know, grew up on a farm. So let's just meld the few things that we know and make it a more, well, interesting, but also just more equitable narrative. Yeah. I mean, their marriage, you know, had difficulties, but they also, they loved each other. Yeah. And that's very like, Generally, clear. they were happy. Yeah. They, they struggled because of each of their careers, you know, and I would say each of their careers, not just his. He obviously had to go to London to do what he was going to do, but she, you know, was an apothecary unofficially, I guess, um, raising her children was her career. And so she devoted her life to that. And that caused them to be separate, which I think is still a very modern notion. Like, yeah. I, you know, I love my partner, but if we're going to both pursue these careers, it's going to strain us. And then, of course, the grief of losing a child mm-hmm. and the strain that that puts on a relationship. And the fact that, like, almost every time the two people grieve differently and those things are at odds. Yes. He wanted to immediately go back to England and escape and, like, just bury himself in his work, and that makes sense, and that's what someone wanted to do. She wanted to sit and, like, hold a lock of his hair and be just, like, all the right. way saturated with him, and both of those things make sense, but you can't do those things together. Exactly. And that's what I loved. One of the scenes at the very end so she finds out from her awful stepmother. There was mm-hmm. also this Cinderella-esque yeah. story because she... The stepmother and stepsisters. Yeah. Agnes didn't grow up knowing her mother, and she has this awful stepmother. And so her stepmother comes prancing into her big new house that Shakespeare's bought her with all his money and is like, guess what his new play is called? Mm. It's called Hamlet. Like, knowing this is going to upset Agnes. And it does because, like you said, they grieve differently. But then when Agnes goes to London and sees the play... There's just this moment of understanding, like... Oh, this is what you were doing with your with right. your grief. And I love that, because it is thought by most scholars that... Ham- or, not Hamlet, that Shakespeare played the ghost of Hamlet in the play, mm-hmm. like the father Hamlet, that young Hamlet has to avenge, of course, which, thinking about the fact that he wrote that four years after his son mm-hmm. died, like, and he's playing the ghost with yeah. his son's name, I was like, oh... I- I that knew was, those things, but I didn't think about it Yeah, like like this. It was obviously part of his grieving process, and while they were separate and not really talking, she might not have understood his process, but then when she sees him on stage essentially taking their son's place dying, yes. she's like, okay, I get it, and I respect what you were doing, and, yes. and that, that was a really nice moment. Yeah, I like that moment of just understanding between those two characters a lot. And like O'Farrell has pointed out, he returned to Stratford. He bought land to rent out. He started, like, he turned his house into basically a and b yeah. for a while. And it's like, she's like, you don't do that after a successful career in London if you didn't want to be there. Yeah. If you didn't you love. You go anywhere. Right. So just, you know, again, pointing out, like, Agnes does not need to be vilified. His hometown does not need to be vilified. The language that she used, which we've both fawned over a little bit, she was very intentional about. So she said that she did not want to use any words that, like, would have had a different meaning then as Mm. they do now or vice versa. And English has changed a lot. There are words that didn't even exist. Oh, yeah. So she had, like, she used the crap out of the Oxford English Dictionary. (laughs) when she, She was very purposeful about the prose that she wrote. She said, for instance... 
I had what I mentally termed a privy line. I was never going to use the word privy or any cod Elizabethan dialogue, she says. I also tried not to use any word that doesn't semantically mean the same thing today as it did in the 16th century. She cites the word shambles as an mm -hmm. example. I use it to mean chaos, but when I looked it up, I found that back then it was to do with dissecting a carcass. Well, that's not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't ring true. It had to go. So she deliberately tried to use no words that would have been different than as to now or vice that's versa. That's cool. I know. I was like, research. Oh. It is a lot of research. And obviously her maternal instincts come through mm -hmm. in the book um, very clearly. And I, I love the way it was all set in Stratford instead of London. Because all the things we read about Shakespeare and all, you know, the movie Shakespeare in Love. And it's all in London. But this is in Stratford. Mm -hmm. And I've been there and I've, I've seen his house. And I just have to, like, end this by telling you they've adapted this book into a play. <gasps> And the Royal Shakespeare Company that performs in Stratford is performing it this year from April to June. How do we go? I, I, well, get on a plane, I guess. <laughs> we should go to that. I know. I'm so excited for her and for the actors and for Shakespeare and for Agnes. Like, That's so cool uh, yeah. that they're performing it in Stratford, too. Yes. I I love that. I love that. So I really appreciate the way that she, you know, reclaimed this this real woman from history, this real woman who was behind the man that we all know. Yeah. Um, and I love Shakespeare. I love it. But this was just, this was cool. Well, I liked it a lot. I considered giving it a five and decided that I did not want to live and die inside the pancakes, but that I would right. recommend them to anybody who I thought would. You weren't going to eat them until you threw up. But. Yeah, but I really did like it. Oh, I'm so once glad. I Once I was in it for the third time, is... I was super invested. I sat and just, like, didn't do anything but read it. So once I was in it, yeah. she had me. It's heavy on the adjectives. <laughs> it, it is. Ooh, our reviewers are going to tell us okay. all about it. Give it to me. Okay. We got to hear from somebody that didn't like it to keep the podcast on track, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nastya, she has a lot to say. Let's hear. This book and I are enemies, foes, nemesis. I did not DNF it on principle to know if my loathing was justified till the end. Finale. Conclusion. <laughs> I see what she's doing. Yes. Spoiler alert, it was. <laughs> Agnes is the wise woman, oracle, witch, fay, elf, sorceress. <laughs> I don't know if I can get through this. <laughs> I was waiting for her to go to the ocean one night and turn into a selkie and swim away. But alas, she is. She is. She is the ultimate not like other girls, girl, woman, other, Shakespeare, Latin tutor, husband, it's a very smart decision not to name him, you see. Tells her exactly that. That's why he is into her, cherishes her, adores her. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> about the prose, because she hasn't already said anything about it. Every description has at least three adjectives. Every feeling or smell or object description has three similes. Everything any character sees conjures some lyrical flashback. Where you can use two words to describe something, Maggie will use 25. It drove me mad, irritated, bored. <laughs> it, uh, and this is a quote from the book. It is a love based on giving and receiving, as well as having and sharing. And the love that they give and have is shared and received. And through this having and giving and sharing and receiving, we too can share and love and have and receive. Maggie O'Farrell. No, sorry. Joey Tribbiani. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate so that, that. So that is not a quote from the book. Not a quote. As I started to say before, that was Joey Tribbiani. <laughs> I had to really 
I was like, when was this in the book? I had to really keep my cool there. Okay. <laughs> she had an opinion on the pros. She was not a fan. That's fine. Not for everybody, I suppose. Although it is still beautiful. All right, Barbara. Grown. Another novel with the stereotypical, magical, beautiful, but rebellious, misunderstood, witch-slash-medicine woman, complete with the obligatory evil stepmother. Really? The most interesting character in this novel is a flea. The Kestrel is a close second. (laughs) (laughs) So she appreciated the prose. Just didn't like Agnes's character. That's fair. And it is is a little tropey, I guess. The Cinderella-esque nature and, and the wise woman that she is, but... Tropes are tropes for a reason. Whatever. Yeah, it was fun. And the fact that it's a woman who never gets recognition, like, go ahead. Put her in a fairy tale. Yeah. What do I mean? All right. Last one. Natalia. Since this overwritten and overwrought book has not yet met an adjective or a metaphor that it didn't like and immediately adopt, usually in neat sets of threes, to add to the never-ending list of descriptors purpling its melodramatic prose, I'll throw out a few just to give you a taste. Overwritten, overwrought, and melodramatic. I already used. There are, however, still all of these. Superfluous, ornate, overly lyrical, flowery, meandering, long-winded, cliche-laden, monotone, repetitive, sentimental, pretentious, and simply overdone. When one word would suffice, twelve will be used. The prose is so purple that even Prince, at the peak of his career, would have stayed away from it. When it comes to the meat of the story, it's certainly a vegetarian option. See, I can do a metaphor, too! I really liked the line about Prince. Uh, I know. <laughs> so purple Prince Man, wouldn't touch I love it. Prince. Uh, I mean, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. But I That's the thing it. is, I was like, man, you got a point there. Yeah. I, st- I stand by it. I'm I'm for it. Cool. That's so funny. Yeah, I really want to read The Marriage Portrait. It's on my Libby Hold list. It'll be there for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. That's fun. I'm glad you finally gave me a book. Finally. <laughs> Congratulations. And I guess we got to give props to Lauren because she's the one who recommended it to Thanks, me. Thanks, Lauren. So. Yay. That's so exciting. Ooh, I guess I have to tell you what we're reading next, next week. Next week. Okay. Um, Leaving Time by Jody. Is it Picolt? Is it Picolt? 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 How I, I always it. say Picolt. Okay. So, Jody. Jody. By old Jody. <laughs> yep, we, we you know her. Leaving time by Jody. Every time I hear the name of this book, I just sing it. Leaving time. time. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> and now is the time. And it's it's closing time. It's I, not even leaving time. Oh, but both of us do that. That's so weird. Yeah. Great minds. I think it's time for us to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love and the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast, and please do, by leaving us a review and five-star rating, and don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. Special thanks to Montague Workshop. See you next week. I don't know any of the rest of the words to this song. I don't think I do either. Some other beginnings and there's a bar. You can't stay here. But right? <laughs> you don't have to go home. I'm not a... I'm so tone deaf. <laughs> That's a line. You don't have to go home, but you can't...
stay here. I'm not going to sing Which, anymore. Of, now, all this just reminds me of The Office when Andy tries to get everybody into, <laughs> <laughs> into closing time. We're already having fun with this book. I'm excited for next Great. week. Wow, that went off the rails fast. Yep. <laughs>